So these things that we just commemorated happened at that supper. There's four Gospels in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the meal. They give record of that which we just did and replayed. The Gospel of John, though, highlights this act of Jesus where he washes the feet of his disciples. He did that to, as he said, to give them an example, an example that you should do as I have done to you. A servant is not greater than his master, he said, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If Jesus, our Lord, did that, then we, as his followers, should do those same kinds of things. That was one of Jesus' suppertime lessons. But this was a very significant and important supper. This was the last supper. Three years of meeting with his disciples, lots of suppers together as they learned and as Jesus taught them, but this would be the last one. So this needed to be a memorable lesson. They might not have realized the impact right, when it, right then when it happened, but those disciples would remember this last meal for the rest of their lives. But not all of them. Jesus will make that very clear. Underneath this very memorable and, and maybe even we might see it as a somewhat sentimental account of a meal, something sinister is happening at the same time. One of the disciples knows it, and Jesus knows it. And this developing evil plot is sort of mingled, is, is mixed in with this amazing act of service on behalf of Jesus. Notice in the part that I read how many times it mixes in words like, not all of you. Judas's looming and imminent betrayal is mentioned there in verse 2. By the way, we are in John 13, if you haven't caught on to that yet, and I'd ask you to just turn there and then follow along as we look at that passage today. So it's, it's mentioned in verse 2. And then look down at verse 10. He says, you are clean, but not every one of you. Verse 11, he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, not all of you are clean. So this Judas thing is sort of simmering in Jesus' mind, even as he's there teaching his disciples, his, his family, there around that supper table. While, what he's saying is that around that table is his family, but not all of you. Jesus knew this. And Judas would have known this. Judas, you see, had already made up his mind about Jesus about six days before this, back at the beginning of chapter 12. He, he by this point, had realized that his hopes of Jesus as a, as a Roman-defeating leader were wrong-headed. He may have attached himself to Jesus in the first place with those kinds of hopes in mind. But as... Jesus went along, and as he started to say certain things and do certain things, it was becoming more and more obvious that those hopes were misdirected. Jesus came to conquer and defeat sin, not the Romans. Anyways, you have both of those things going on here in John 13. Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, while at the same time identifying Judas eventually here as the, the betrayer and the traitor. 
And all of this is in the context of a private, we might say, like I said, family supper where Jesus is aiming to teach his disciples something very important about, and through, he's going to teach it through his actions. And so I read the first part of this story. Let me finish off the rest of that scene before it says that Jesus would leave the room down in verse 31. We'll pick it up in verse 18. Jesus is still speaking when he says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at at a table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. So let's go back and look at this entire supper table action and conversation and ask ourselves what kind of lessons Jesus is trying to teach here at this very crucial part of his life and his mission, a very crucial point in his whole incarnation. There are some very significant lessons that Jesus is teaching. He's just about to die, and here he is with his spiritual family, and this is what happens. He washes their feet, and he identifies his betrayer, a traitor in and among his very own guys, in and among his very own brothers. You can see both of those things in the introduction to the scene in verses 1 to 3. These verses actually paint a clear picture of the fact that that none of this is going to surprise Jesus. He, he's walking into this totally aware of what he's doing and what it, what's about to take place. Verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to, to depart out of the world and to the Father. He knew that he had almost completed his mission from God. He was on the verge of, uh, of completion, of, of, of doing the thing that he was called to do. Verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. and So that's clear to Jesus. Jesus' omniscience, the fact that he's all-knowing, is on full display here. He's fully in control. He's sovereign. Those are sort of the brackets around the beginning and end of verses 1 to 3. And knowing all this, what does it mean for what's happening right here around that table? Well, two things. Number one, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He wants to make sure his disciples know that. 
there's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen here that might cause them to question that. But he wants them to know that he's fully in control, that he knows all things. He, he loved his own to the end. Beautiful words. He loved them to completion. That's what this means. He loved them all the way through, as G. Campbell Morgan describes it. He saw it through. And he's about to demonstrate that. But number two, in verse two, you've got this betrayal dynamic that's in the air here around that table. One of the ones that appear to be his own is about to disown and, even worse, betray Jesus. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus, knowing all that, Jesus, without any explanation, springs into action. You heard the story. Most of you know this story. Look at the actions there. Jesus rose from the supper. Jesus laid aside his outer garments. He, he, he takes a towel and he ties it around his waist. He, he pours water into a basin and he starts washing his disciples' feet and wiping their feet with a towel. Just a footnote here, included in the disciples, in the feet of the disciples that Jesus washed is Judas, Judas's feet. The background of this act is that back in those days, you only traveled by foot, the roads were dusty, and people wore only sandals, so, so feet would get dirty. Whenever feet would be washed, though, when they'd come into a home, it was usually a duty that was reserved for the lowest slave in the ranks, the one with the least seniority, the one who got all the dirty, grossest jobs. I may have told you this before, but when I first started working in a university cafeteria when I was 14 or 15, somewhere around there, I was assigned my first duty to wash the pots. It was the starter job, the job no one wanted. I still remember these very seasoned cafeteria ladies <laughs> piling dirty, greasy, leftover um, caked pots and pans over the pot washing station. And I could see in their eyes Sort of thoughts that went like, I wonder how long he's going to last. I've gone through 14 already, something like that. But this was the job for the new guy. This was the job for the young guy. Well, you get the picture. That was the foot washer guy or the, or the foot washer gal in those days. And so verses 3 to 5 are meant to shock us. They are meant to be shocking. Jesus says down in verse 14, If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet. So the teacher and the Lord of the group, the leader of the group, took on the role reserved for the lowest slave. In the absence of probably no household servants there, and, and in the absence of the fact that any of the disciples of Jesus volunteered, Jesus did. And Jesus actually uses this scene to in many ways become a servant in order to be their teacher and their Lord. He uses this scene to become a servant in order to be their teacher and Lord. He's going to teach them something. He's going to teach them a lesson and he's going to teach them specifically about what it means to be the Lord. It's shocking. And no one is more shocked than the disciples. And as usual, Peter puts the shock into words. When Jesus gets to Peter, he blurts out, Lord, 
It's important that he called them that. Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus says, Peter, you're going to understand this later. And Peter puts up a protest again. You shall never wash my feet. And so Peter has the right answer, doesn't he? He knows it's not supposed to be like this. In his mind, this is crazy. It's all out of order. And he's exactly right to think that. And so Jesus says, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And with those words, we start to find out that something more than just dirty, dirty feet is at stake here. It's by being washed, you see, by being cleansed that we get connected to Jesus Christ. That we have a, a share, a, a part with him. Well, once Peter hears that, he's all in. He, he doesn't understand what Jesus meant yet, I don't think, but he, he, he goes totally to the other extreme and says, if that's the case, don't just stop with my feet. Here's my hands, wash those. Here's my head, wash that too. Wash all of me. Again, good answer, right answer. To which Jesus says something very interesting. Peter has just said, wash my feet and my hands and my head. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who has, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. What's Jesus talking about here? Well, I'm not sure that the disciples even knew what Jesus meant on this side of the cross. Like Jesus told Peter, they'd understand this later. But you see, Jesus is turning this into a spiritual object lesson. Jesus is picturing here our being cleansed with, or from sin. And he's saying that those who have bathed don't need to wash. In other words, those who have been justified, those who belong to Jesus, those who follow Jesus in a saving kind of way are already clean by virtue of their faith in Jesus Christ. Their sins have been washed away. Their sins have been forgiven. Their sins have been, like Jesus did with a the towel, they're wiped away. And just like Jesus wiped away their feet with that towel, so his blood wiped away the sins of all those who would believe in him, those who put their total trust, their total reliance in what Jesus accomplished by dying on the cross. When he says except for his feet, I think he means that we still need to confess and to, and to seek forgiveness for sins we commit, for those sins that, that we might say remain, for remaining sin. 1 John 1.9 tells us about that, right? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Yet we who have been washed by the blood of Jesus at salvation are completely clean. That's how Jesus ends this. Jesus' upcoming death on the cross, this means, was complete in its effects. His sacrifice does not need to be repeated. It's a once and for all sacrifice. It's complete in its sufficiency. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus came to save sinners to wipe away our sins. You are clean, Jesus says there at the end of verse 10. He taught all those things at what we know now as the Lord's Supper. And so all these things need to come into our minds when we, when we replay those events and when we think upon the sacrifice of our Lord and who he was.
whenever we celebrate this supper. Yes, or yet, this good news is taught in the shadow of betrayal and evil. Included in the feet that Jesus washed, like I said before, were the feet of Judas Iscariot. Jesus said, and you are clean, but not all of you. And he'll come back to that in verses 18 and following, but he points out here that the spiritual lesson that he just taught was only for the eleven, those that had believed in Jesus. Judas had his feet washed, but he repeatedly rejected the offer of salvation over a period of three years with the Savior, including one last opportunity right here. And so while it was Peter who spoke up and objected to this act of Jesus, it was actually Judas that rejected Jesus. He had hardened his heart against Jesus, and he would end up dying in his sin. Jesus would die as well. But he would die for the sins of all those who would believe in him. Well, Jesus had one more lesson to teach and that at that supper time gathering with the 12, and that was the lesson of humility and service. We see that in verses 12 to 17. After he had finished washing their feet, Jesus took his place around the table again, put his outer garment back on, sat down, and by the way, there's this probably, like I said, uh, and when they had a supper before, it was probably a low table, maybe a foot or so off the ground, and they would eat by reclining. They'd usually lean on their left hand, their feet would be out, and, uh, and, and so that's sort of the scene here. And Jesus went up and washed their feet, and then he, which were way on the outside, and then he, would, he took his place again after he was done. And then he started to explain why he did what he did. The teacher and the Lord became a servant. He became a slave. Even thinking of the sentence that way is, is mind-boggling. How can a Lord become a slave? But that's the manner, that's the way of one who, who follows Christ. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you, should, that you also should do just as I have done for you. How do you do when you are asked to take a lower role than maybe you think you should have? You can paint this into any scenario that you think of. Do you feel like it's beneath you? Do you think that's for someone else? That you've moved past that? Well, now that you know that the one who was there at creation, remember, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, the one who will come as king, did the unimaginable, how could we not lower ourselves and serve? See, the Christian has an entirely and otherworldly calling. It's the call to humble service. Since Jesus did this, how could we refuse? Don Carson says that Christian zeal, divorced from transparent humility, sounds shallow, even pathetic. Jesus, he tells us in Mark 10, came not to be served but to serve. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2, 5 to 8, actually back to verse 3, is the classic passage connecting Jesus with our, with our calling. Just turn there for a minute. And keep your thumb in John chapter 13, but turn to Philippians chapter 2. 
and just pick it up in the middle of verse 3. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind according, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, what was Jesus like? How did Jesus exemplify this? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a, on a cross. Look to the interests of others. Because Jesus, precisely because Jesus, looked to your own interests. Carry yourself humbly. Don't have a sense of, of entitlement that's so prevalent in our world today. Apart from Christ, you have no title other than sinner. Talked about that in the song, right? Saints and sinners. It's only through Christ and his self-giving sacrifice that you are called a saint, that you are called a child of God. Be humble. Know that this was not your own doing. It was because one took an interest in you. And died on a cross in order to glorify his Father. Serve one another. In verse 18 then, Jesus is still talking, but now he picks up on what he's been hinting at, on what's been simmering in the first part. When he explains the meaning of washing feet, he says that those things don't apply to all of you. Eleven were loyal to Jesus and, and would be open to following his example of humble service, but one would not. And in verses 18 and 19, Jesus wants to make sure that they know that Jesus is well aware of that. Again, he's telling them about his sovereignty, about his omniscience. This does not come as a surprise to him, nor does the betrayal of Judas nullify their mission later. Verses 19 and 20 affirm that. But you might wonder here, why would Jesus choose Judas as a disciple, right? That's what we always wonder, if he knew this was all going to happen. Well, this tells us that it was not in some moment of weakness that Jesus did that. You know, he was maybe a little sleepy when he chose his disciples and just ended up picking Judas. No. This was all part of God's eternal plan. And John actually finds the answer in the Bible. There will be a friend who will lift his heel against me. This was all part of God's eternal plan. It would be another one of those circumstances that would lead Jesus to the cross. Also part of God's eternal plan. That saying comes from Psalm 41, the passage that Stuart read a little while ago. David fell to that kind of betrayal from one of his so-called friends. And now Jesus would feel that sense of betrayal from one of his so-called friends. And I say that Jesus would feel that because of verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, one of you will betray me. He was troubled in his spirit. It's just another reminder that Jesus didn't walk into God's eternal plan without any feeling. It was not like he was robot 
and this was what needed to happen, and I'm just going to go and do this. He felt all the human emotions of everything that was about to happen, including betrayal from one of the twelve. But with that announcement, one of you will betray me, what was simmering would now come to full boil. Those words would have been shocking to the disciples, other than Judas, probably just as shocking as Jesus washing their feet. First, Jesus does an act of extraordinary love and service as an example, and now he announces that one of them would turn him in. There was a turncoat in their ranks. Can you imagine? They had no idea. Even, even Judas may have been surprised, wondering if Jesus was going to unmask him right then and right there. So how do they react here? Yeah, silence. No words. There, there, there's only looks, you know, some staring, darting eyes. Verse 22 says that. The disciples looked at one another. Is one of those moments where everyone's eyes are shifting to the person next to them? Is it him? Could it be him? The supper time conversation around that table suddenly got tense. Even Peter doesn't say anything, which is odd. But he can't hold back totally. He, he motions to the, the disciple that Jesus loved. This is most likely John referring to himself. Because John was sitting right beside Jesus. And so John leans over and he, and he whispers to Jesus, Lord, who is it? And Jesus doesn't tell him outright. He says, here's how you're going to know. He'll dip a piece of bread and then he'd give it to the one who's to betray him. Now in those days, that kind of thing would be a way for a host to show honor to someone. Almost like, proposing a toast. And so he dips the morsel and he gives it to Judas. Well, two things to note about that. First, we need to note that Jesus genuinely makes one final appeal to the betrayer. He reached out right to the very end. Judas could have come under conviction here and repented but he doesn't respond. And a moment of reaching out, a moment of extreme love toward one who would betray him, a moment of honor from Jesus turns into the moment of final judgment for Judas. Opportunity gone. Just like that. Verse 27, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus, Jesus then tells Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. And Judas leaves. Verse 30. He immediately went out. And this scene ends with four ominous words. And it was night. Those words were more than just a time marker, I believe. Judas was here, as it says in John 12, as Jesus warns, he was overtaken by darkness. He was under the grip of the power of darkness. He went out, leaving the light of the world forever. But what about the disciples? Well, they still didn't know what was going on. 
says in verses 28 and 29. They could only speculate on why Jesus said, do it quickly to Judas. I've got to think that John would have known at least. He would have heard the bit about the bread, but he, may have been, he might have been the only one. Jesus might have just whispered that to him. Everyone else only heard that last line about doing it quickly. However, they would all know soon enough. Back in verse 19, Jesus said, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does, you may believe that I am he. But for now, they didn't know. So what are the lessons the teacher in the Lord is teaching his followers here around this supper table on this last night before he would be arrested? Well, for one, he's displaying his loyal love for his followers, for those who are his own. Don't miss that. He loves them right through. A short time after this, they'd all disappear and famously, in Peter's case, disown him. But that does not deter Jesus. He loved them to the end. After his death and resurrection, the scene would come back to them and they would follow Jesus to their dying day. And this scene is preserved for us for that same purpose, that, that you would know that if you are in Christ, nothing will separate you from the love of God through Christ Jesus. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Secondly, Jesus is definitely teaching us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means that we have to take our cue from Jesus to serve one another in humility and humble acts of service. This is what Jesus did, and how could we do any less? So think of it, whatever your context is, what is a way that you can serve one another? How can you be a humble servant as Jesus was? And finally, this serves as a warning that there are those who say that they follow Christ, who say that they follow Christ, but don't. Their soul has not been transformed. There are people who might make that claim, but only for their own gain, like Judas did. These people reside within God's people. In one parable, Jesus says that there's always weeds in and among the wheat. There's always tares with the wheat. Satan is at work among God's people, most times in ways that we don't even perceive. Yet, we can know that there's nothing that Satan can do to stop God's plans for his own people. If you are one of Christ's, if you are in Christ's, you don't need to fret. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And finally, this passage poses the question that every scene with Jesus poses. As we've gone through John, there's always an opportunity to go one way or the other. Do you belong to him? Are you for him or against him? Jesus, through his life, through his words, through his, anx- his actions, constantly demands an answer to that question. And it's, it's an either-or. You can't be indifferent on that question. Indifference amounts to unbelief. You can't plead the fifth. Both of those options are shown here. We see what it means to follow Jesus, and we see the, the, the tragic result of unbelief. You see, Jesus has done what is necessary for you to come to him. He has reached out to you by way of the cross, laying aside his rights as God, taking the place of a servant, 
dying on a cross to wash away the sins that you have committed against God, sins that should rightly put you and me on the cross. Wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you confess and turn and believe, you will be saved. And then you will be his. You will belong to him and you will be loved to the end. Believe in Christ. Follow Christ. Our Father, we thank you for this this poignant moment. These, these contrasts in that scene are, are just mind-boggling. Everything about this scene is mind-boggling, how you would stoop to wash your disciples' feet. But we know, our Father, that this is why you sent Jesus. Jesus condescended. Jesus came down so that we might rise up. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to assume that same mentality, that you would help us to have that same attitude, that you would show us that the way up starts by going down, by serving one another, by being humble. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to, to heed the warnings, heed the lessons that, that come from, from the betrayal as well. Thank you, Father, that you know all things. And thank you, Father, that you ordained even these things to accomplish your greater purposes as you gave your life for your friends. Father, we thank you that we are yours by faith. Continue to assure us and to, and to affirm our salvation so that we would walk humbly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.